Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hey, my name's Otis Gray and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. It is suddenly, somehow, almost Christmas time, and we are going to be continuing this December with some very Christmassy readings, including a story by an author we've never read on the show tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, 
I just want to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com. C. Morrow, Leah Kane, Elizabeth Lacabue, Jamie Wilchell, Adam Hopkinson, and Stacy Tobias. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. It really, really means a lot. So thank you. And if you don't know, uh, these names that I just read, they're brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can support creators of the work that you like. So if um, Sleepy has maybe become a part of your nightly routine and it helps you get a better night's rest, then consider going to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donating even a couple bucks a month. $2 a month gets you access to the ad-free version of the show. $5 a month gets you access to um, this whole new poetry feed filled with poetry readings you haven't heard before. But even if you donate a dollar, it goes a really long way. And no matter how much you donate, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you'd like to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio thank you and as always the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski and the cover art for sleepy is by Gracie Kanan on tonight's I've got a little uh, Christmas story for you and uh All told, it takes place in a very Christmassy setting, but it is, it has that old-timey kind of um, high-class social interaction nature that Jane Austen novels have in some of the Brontes' work, which to me, um, yeah, this is, if I'm being honest, particularly boring reading. And uh, for our purposes here tonight, that's going to be just fine. So, this is a uh, meandering conversation, introduction to some characters of this novel amid the setting of a Christmas party at Mr. Beasley's. It is wonderfully boring and well-written, and I really think you're going to like going to sleep to it. So... Without further ado, Beasley's Christmas Party by Booth Tarkington. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter One The maple-bordered street was as still as a country Sunday, so quiet that there seemed an echo to my footsteps. It was four o'clock in the morning, 
Clear October moonlight misted through the thinning foliage to the shadowy sidewalk and lay like a transparent silver fog upon the house of my admiration. As I strode along, returning from my first night's work on the Wainwright morning dispatch. I had already marked that house as the finest to my taste in Wainwright. Hitherto, on my excursions to the metropolis, the state capital, I was not without a certain native jealousy that Spencerville, that country seat where I lived, had nothing so good. Now, however, I approached its purlieus with a pleasure in it quite unalloyed, for I was at last myself a resident, albeit of only one day's standing of Wainwright, and the house, though I had not even an idea who lived there, part of my possessions as a citizen. Moreover, I might enjoy the warmer pride of a next-door neighbor, for Mrs. Aberthwaite's, where I had taken a room, was just beyond. This was the quietest part of Wainwright. Business stopped short of it, and the fashionable resident section had overleaped this forgotten backwater, leaving it undisturbed and unchanging, with that look about it which is the quality of a few urban quarters, and eventually of none, as a town grows to be a city, the look of still being a neighborhood. This friendliness of appearance was largely the emanation of the homely and beautiful house which so greatly pleased my fancy. It might be difficult to say why I thought it the finest house in Wainwright, for a simpler structure would be hard to imagine. It was merely a big, old-fashioned brick house, painted brown and very plain, set well away from the street among some splendid forest trees with a fair spread of flat lawn. But it gave back a great deal for your glance, just as some people do. It was a large house, as I say. We had to look not like a mansion, but like a home, and made you wish that you lived on it. Or driving by of an evening, you would have liked to hitch your horse and go in. It spoke so surely of hardy, old-fashioned people living there who would welcome you merrily. It looked like a house where there were a grandfather and a grandmother, where holidays were warmly kept, where there were boisterous family reunions to which uncles and aunts who had been born there would return from no matter what distances. A house where big turkeys would be on the table often, where one called the hired man, and named either Abner or Ole, would crack walnuts upon a flat iron clutch between his knees on the back porch. It looked like a house where they played charades, where there would be long streamers of evergreen and dozens of wreaths of holly at Christmas time, where there were tearful, happy weddings and great throwings of rice after little brides from the broad front steps. In a word, it was the sort of house to make the hearts of spinsters and bachelors very lonely and wistful. And that is about as near as I can come to my reason for thinking it the finest house in Wainwright. 
The moon hung kindly above its level roof in the silence that October morning as I checked my gate to loiter along the picket fence. But suddenly, the house showed a light of its own. The spurt of a match took my eye to one of the upper windows, then a steadier glow of orange told me that a lamp was lighted. The window was open, and a man looked out and whistled loudly. I stopped, thinking that he meant to attract my attention, that something might be wrong, that perhaps someone was needed to go for a doctor. My mistake was immediately evident, however. I stood in the shadow of the trees bordering the sidewalk, and the man at the window had not seen me. Boy, boy, he called softly. Where are you, simple Doria? He leaned from the window, looking downward. Why, there you are, he exclaimed, and turned to address some invisible person within the room. He's right there, underneath the window. I'll bring him up. He leaned out again. Wait there, simple Doria, he called. I'll be down in a jiffy and let you in. Puzzled. I stared at the vacant lawn before me. The clear moonlight revealed it brightly, and it was empty of any living presence. There were no bushes or shrubberies, nor even shadows that could have been mistaken for a boy, if Simple Doria was a boy. There was no dog in sight. There was no cat. There was nothing beneath the window except thick, close-cropped grass. A light shone in the hallway behind the broad front doors. One of these was open and revealed in silhouette the tall, thin figure of a man in long, old-fashioned dressing gown. Simple Doria, he said, addressing the night air with considerable severity. I don't know what to make of you. You might have caught your death of cold, roving out at such an hour. But there, he continued, more indulgently. Wipe your feet on the mat and come in. You're safe now. He closed the door, and I heard him call to someone upstairs as he rearranged the fastenings. Simple Dory is all right, only a little chilled. I'll bring him up to your fire. I went on my way in a condition of astonishment that engendered almost a doubt of my eyes. For if my sight was unimpaired and myself not subject to optical or mental delusion, neither boy nor dog nor bird nor cat nor any other object of this visible world had entered that open door. Was my finest house then a place of call for wandering ghosts who came home to roost at four in the morning? It was only a step to Mrs. Aberthwaite's. I let myself in with the key that the good lady had given me, stole up to my room, went to my window, and stared across the yard at the house next door. The front window in the second story, I decided, necessarily belonged to that room in which the lamp had been lighted 
but all was dark there now. I went to bed and dreamed that I was out at sea in a far, having embarked on a transparent vessel whose preposterous name inscribed upon glass life belts depending here and there from an invisible rail was Simple Doria. Chapter 2 Mrs. Aperthwaite's was a commodious old house. The greater part of it, about the same age, I judged as its neighbor. But the late Mr. Aperthwaite had caught the mansard fever for the late seventies, and the building disease, once fastened upon him, had never known a convalescence, but rather a series of relapses, the tokens of which, in the nature of a cupola, and a couple framed turrets were terrifyingly apparent. These romantic misplacements seemed to me not inharmonious with the library, a cheerful and pleasantly shabby apartment downstairs, where I found, over a substratum of history, encyclopedia, and family Bible, some worn old volumes of Godey's Ladies' Book, an early edition of Cooper's works, Scott, Bower, Macaulay, Byron, and Tennyson, complete. Some odd volumes of Victor Hugo, of the elder Dumas, of Flaubert, of Gautier, and of Balzac, Clarissa, Lalaurook, the Alhambra, Beula, Uarda, Lucille, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Ben-Hur, Trilby, She, Little Ford, Fauntleroy. And of a latter decade, there were novels about those delicately tangled emotions experienced by the supreme few, and stories of adventurous royalty, tales of clean-limbed young American manhood, and some thin volumes of rather precious verse. It was amid these romantic scenes that I awaited the sound of the lunch bell which for me was the announcement of breakfast. When I arose from my first night's slumber under Mrs. Apperthwaite's roof, I wondered if the books were a fair mirror of Mrs. Apperthwaite's mind. I had been told that Mrs. Apperthwaite had a daughter. Mrs. Apperthwaite herself, in her youth, might have sat to an illustrator of Scott or Bulwer. Even now you could see she had come as near as being romantically beautiful as was consistently proper for such a timid, gentle little gentlewoman as she was. Reduced by her husband's insolvency, coincident with his demise, to keeping borders, she did it gracefully, as if the urgency thereto were only a spirit of quiet hospitality. It should be added in haste that she set an excellent table. Moreover, the guests who gathered at her board were of a very attractive description, as I decided the instant my eye fell upon the lady who sat beside me at lunch. I knew at once that she was Miss Apperthwaite. She went so, as they say, with her mother. Nothing could have been more suitable. 
Mrs. Aperthway was the kind of woman whom you would expect to have a beautiful daughter, and Miss Aperthway more than fulfilled her mother's promise. I guessed her, I guessed her to be more than Julia Capulet's age, indeed. She was of a larger, fuller, more striking type than Mrs. Aperthway, a bolder type, one might put it. Though she might have been a great deal bolder than Mrs. Aperthway without being bold. Certainly she was handsome enough to make it difficult for a young fellow to keep from staring at her. She had an abundance of very soft, dark hair, worn almost severely, as if its profusion necessitated repression. Then I am compelled to admit that her fine eyes expressed a distant contemplation, obviously of habit, not of mood, so pronounced that one of her enemies, if she had any, might have described them as dreamy. Only one other of my own sex was present at the lunch table, a Mr. Dowden, an elderly lawyer and politician of whom I had heard, and to whom Mrs. Apperthway, coming in after the rest of us were seated, introduced me. She made the presentation general, and I had the experience of receiving a nod and a slow glance in which there was a sort of dusky, estimating brilliance from the beautiful lady opposite me. It might have been better mannered for me to address myself to Mr. Dowden, or one of the very nice elderly women, who were my fellow guests, than to open a conversation with Miss Apperthway. But I did not stop to think about that. You have a splendid old house next door to you here, Miss Apperthway, I said. It's a privilege to find it in view from my window. There was a faint stir of some consternation in the little company. The elderly ladies stopped talking abruptly and exchanged glances, though this was not of my observation at the moment, I think, but recurred to my consciousness later when I had perceived my blunder. May I ask who lives here? I pursued. Miss Apperthwaite allowed her noticeable lashes to cover her eyes for an instant, then looked up again. A Mr. Beasley, she said. Not the Honorable David Beasley, I exclaimed. Yes, she returned, with a certain gravity which I afterward wished had checked me. Do you know him? Not in person, I explained. You see, I've written a good deal about him. I was with the Spencerville Journal until a few days ago. And even in the country, we know who's who in politics over the state. Beasley's the man that went to Congress and never made a speech, never made even a motion to adjourn, but got everything his district wanted. There's talk of him now for governor. Indeed. And so it's the Honorable David Beasley who lives in that splendid place. How curious that is. Why? asked Miss Apperthway. It seems too big for one man, I answered, and I've always had the impression Mr. Beasley was a bachelor. Yes, she said, rather slowly. He is. 
But of course he doesn't live there all alone, I suppose, aloud. Probably he has. No, there's no one else, except a couple of servants. What a crime, I exclaim. If there ever was a house meant for a large family, that one is. Can't you almost hear it crying out for heaps and heaps of romping children? I should think. I was interrupted by a loud cough from Mr. Dowdham, so abrupt and artificial that his intention to check the flow of my innocent prattle was embarrassingly obvious, even to me. Can you tell me, he said, leaning forward and following up the interruption as hastily as possible, what the farmers were getting for their wheat when you left Spencerville? Ninety-four cents, I answered, and felt my ears growing red with mortification. Too late, I remembered that the newcomer in a community should guard his tongue among the natives until he has unraveled the skein of their relationships, alliances feuds and private wars, a precept not unlike the classic injunction. Yes, my darling daughter, hang your clothes on a hickory limb, but don't go near the water. However, in my confusion, I warmly regretted my failure to follow it and resolved not to blunder again. Mr. Dowden thanked me for the information for which he had no real desire, and the elderly ladies again taking up, with all too evident relief, their various mild debates, he inquired if I played bridge. But I forget, he added, of course you'll be at the despatch office in the evenings and can't be here. After which he immediately began to question me about my work making his determination to give me no opportunity again to mention the Honorable David Beasley unnecessarily conspicuous, as I thought. I could only conclude that some unpleasantness had arisen between himself and Beasley, probably of political origin, since they were both in politics, and of personal and consequently bitter development and that Mr. Dowden found the mention of Beasley not only unpleasant to himself, but a possible embarrassment to the ladies, who, I supposed, were aware of the quarrel on his account. After lunch, not having to report at the office immediately, I took unto myself the solace of a cigar, which kept me company during a stroll about Mrs. Apperthwaite's capacious yard. In the rear I found an old-fashioned rose garden, the bushes long since bloomless and now brown with autumn, and I paced its graveled paths up and down, at the same time favoring Mrs. Beasley's house with a covert study that would have done credit to a porch climber, for the sting of my blunder at the table was quiescent, or at least neutralized, under the itch of a curiosity far from satisfied concerning the interesting premises next door. The gentleman in the dressing gown, I was sure, could have been no other than the Honorable David Beasley himself. He came not an eye shot now, neither he nor any other. There was no sign of life about the place. 
That portion of his yard which lay behind the house was not within my vision, it is true. His property being here separated from Mrs. Apperthwaite's by a board fence higher than a tall man could reach. But there was no sound from the other side of his partition, save that caused by the quiet movement of rusty leaves in the breeze. My cigar was at half length when the green lattice door of Mrs. Apperthwaite's back porch was open, and Miss Apperthwaite, bearing a saucer of milk, issued therefrom, followed hastily by a very white fat cat with a pink ribbon round its neck, a vibrant nose, and fixed voracious eyes uplifted to the saucer. The lady and her cat offered to view a group as pretty as a popular painting, and it was improved when, stooping, Miss Apperthwaite set the saucer upon the ground, and continuing in that posture, stroked the cat. To bend so far as a test of a woman's grace, I have observed. She turned her face toward me and smiled. I'm almost at the age, you see. What age? I asked stupidly enough. When we take to cats, she said, rising. Spinsterhood, we like to call it. Single blessedness. That is your kind heart. You decline to make one of us happy to the despair of all the rest. She laughed at this, though with no very genuine mirth, I marked and let my 1830 attempt at gallantry pass without other retort. You seemed interested in the old place yonder. She indicated Mr. Beasley's house with a nod. Oh, I understood my blunder, I said quickly. I wish I had known the subject was embarrassing or unpleasant to Mr. Dowden. What made you think that? Surely, I said, you saw how pointedly he cut me off. Yes, she returned thoughtfully. He rather did, it's true. At least, I see how you got that impression. She seemed to muse upon this, letting her eyes fall, then raising them, allowed her faraway gaze to rest upon the house beyond the fence, and said, It is an interesting old place. And Mr. Beasley himself, I began. Oh, she said, he isn't interesting. That's his trouble. You mean his trouble not to? She interrupted me, speaking with sudden surprising energy. I mean he's a man of no imagination. No imagination, I exclaimed. None in the world, not one ounce of imagination, not one grain. Then who, I cried, or what, is Simple Doria? Simple what, she said, plainly mystified. Simple Doria. Simple Doria, she repeated, and laughed. What in the world is that? You never heard of it before? Never in my life. 
You've lived next door to Mr. Beasley a long time, haven't you? All my life. And I suppose you must know him pretty well. What next? She said, smiling. You said he lived there all along, I went on tentatively. Except for a couple of servants. Can you tell me, I hesitated. Has he ever been thought, well, odd? Never, she answered emphatically. Never anything so exciting. Merely deadly and hopelessly commonplace. She picked up the saucer, now exceedingly empty, and set it upon a shelf by the lattice door. What was it about? What was that name? Simple Doria? I will tell you, I said. And I related in detail the singular performance of which I had been a witness in the late moonlight before that morning's dawn. As I talked, we half unconsciously moved across the lawn together, finally seating ourselves upon a bench beyond the rose beds and near the high fence. The interest my companion exhibited in the narration might have surprised me, and my nocturnal experience itself been less surprising. She interrupted me now and then, with little half-check ejaculations of acute wonder, but sat for the most part with her elbow on her knee and her chin in her hand. Her face turned eagerly to mine, and her lips parted in half-breathless attention. There was nothing far away about her eyes now. They were widely and intently alert. When I finished, she shook her head slowly, as if quite dumbfounded, and altered her position, leaning against the back of the bench and gazing straight before her without speaking. It was plain that her neighbor's extraordinary behavior had revealed a phase of his character novel enough to be startling. One explanation might be just barely possible, I said. If it is, it is the most remarkable case of Somnambulism on record. Did you ever hear of Mr. Beasley's walking in his? She touched me lightly, but peremptorily on the arm in warning, and I stopped. On the other side of the board fence, a door opened creakily, and there sounded a loud and cheerful voice, that of the gentleman in the dressing gown. Here we come, it said. Me and big Bill Hammersley. I want to show Bill I can jump anyways three times as far as he can. Come on, Bill. Is that Mr. Beasley's voice? I asked under my breath. Miss Apperthwaite nodded in affirmation. Could he have heard me? No, she whispered. He's just come out of the house. And then to herself, Who under heaven is Bill Hammersley? I never heard of him. Of course, Bill, said the voice beyond the fence. If you're afraid, I'll beat you too badly. You've still got time to back out. I did understand you to kind of hint that you were considerable of a jumper. 
But if... What? What do you say, Bill? There ensued a moment's complete silence. Oh, all right, the voice then continued. You say you're in this to win, do you? Well, so am I, Bill Hammersley. So am I. Who'll go first? Me? All right. From the edge of the walk here. Now then. One. Two. Three. Ha. A sound came to our ears of someone landing heavily, and at full length it seemed on the turf, followed by a slight rusty groan in the same voice. Ah, don't you laugh, Bill Hammersley. I haven't jumped as much as I ought to these last twenty years. I reckon I've kind of lost the hang of it. Aha. There were indications that Mr. Beasley was picking himself up and brushing his trousers with his hands. Now it's your turn, Bill. What say? Silence again, followed by, Yes, I'll make Simple Doria get out of the way. Come here, Simple Doria. Now, Bill, pull your heels together on the edge of the walk. That's right. Already? Now then. One for the money, two for the show, three to make ready, and four, four to go. Another silence. By jingo, Bill Hammersley, you've beat me. Ha ha. That was a jump. What say? Silence once more. You say you can do an even better jump than that. Now, Bill, don't brag. Oh, you say you've often jumped farther? Oh, you say that that was up in Scotland, where you had a springboard? Oh, all right. Let's see how far you can jump when you really try. There. Heels on the walk again. That's right. Swing your arms. One. Two, three. There you go. Another silence. Zing. Well, sir, I'll be eternally snitched to flinders if you didn't do it that time, Bill Hammersley. I see I never really saw any jumping before in all my born days. It's eleven feet if it's an inch. What? You say you... I heard no more. For Miss Apperthway, her face flushed and her eyes shining, beckoned me imperiously to follow her and departed so hurriedly that it might be said that she ran. I don't know, said I, keeping her at elbow. Hush, she warned me, though we were already at a safe distance and did not speak again until we had reached the front walk. There she paused, and I noted that she was trembling, and, no doubt, correctly, judged her emotion to be that of consternation. There was no one there, she exclaimed. He was all by himself. It was just the same as what you saw last night. Evidently. 
did it sound to you? There was a little odd tremor in her voice that I found very appealing. Did it sound to you like a person who's lost his mind? I don't know, I said. I don't know at all what to make of it. He couldn't have been. Her eyes grew very wide. Intoxicated. No, I'm sure it wasn't that. Then I don't know what to make of it either. All that wild talk about Bill Hammersley and Simple Doria and Springboards in Scotland and and an 11-foot jump, I suggested. Why, there's no more of Bill Hammersley, she cried with a gesture of excited emphasis, than there is a simple Doria. So it appears, I agreed. He's lived there all alone, she said solemnly, in that big house, so long, just sitting there evening after evening all by himself, never going out, never reading anything, not even thinking, just sitting and sitting and sitting. Well, she broke off suddenly, shook the frown from her forehead, and made me the offer of a dazzling smile. There's no use bothering one's own head about it. I'm glad to have a fellow witness, I said. It's so eerie I might have concluded there was something the matter with me. You're going to your work, she asked, as I turned toward the gate. I'm very glad I don't have to go to mine. Yours, I inquired rather blankly. I teach algebra and plain geometry at the high school, said this surprising young woman. Thank heaven it's Saturday. I'm reading Les Mis for the seventh time, and I'm going to have a real moment over Gervais and the barricade this afternoon. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.